Episode 18, The Soul of a Nation, Extended Version I cannot profess to be a good student of history. In fact, I did not like history when I was in high school. The subject just didn't excite me like math did. I passed my history classes, but to, be, to me it was a matter of memorizing dates and names. It wasn't until my sophomore year at Morgan State College, as it was known then, that history and U.S. history began to spark my interests. It is said that good teachers know how to reach any kind of student, regardless of their learning style. My college history professor was such a, a teacher. He brought the country's past alive for me. His most favorite topic to lecture on was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Even with a lisp, he said the name with admiration, pride, and distinction. Initially, I paid attention solely because of name recognition. My father's name was Roosevelt. Gradually, Professor Woodward described how this crippled from polio president handled the crises the United States faced, the Depression, World War II, and other such catastrophic situations. My professor's excitement was palpable as he told the class how the implementation of the Social Security Act saved the common working person. FDR's fireside chats, he said, were measures of calming and healing, much like the practice of meditation these days. I would look forward to going to history class because I didn't know what interesting story I would hear. When it came time for end of the semester exams for history classes, we had to write essays in a five by seven inch blue book, books we bought from the bookstore for 25 cents. Each booklet had about 15 wide line pages. I think I ran across a few of my blue books when I found my old school briefcase a few years ago. I know why I saved several of them. For that history class exam, I got an A. Why? Because one of the essay questions we could choose to write about was, you got it, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Though I made history being the first college graduate in my family, I never really gave the subject another thought until 20 years later. I think my interest in history was revived when I started my first post-retirement project to research my family history. I spent almost a year going to the Maryland archives in Annapolis to learn about my ancestors. I got as far back as 1831 on my mother's side and the mid-1800s on my father's. I was excited to learn that at both time frames, my ancestors were free people. A, cousin on, a second cousin on my father's side has traced us back to the first freed married couple, William and Caroline. But the thing that has prompted me to write this episode in its extension is the history that's in the making and how this country arrived at this place of division, destruction, distrust, and dissemination of inaccurate information. While I am not an endowed practicing researcher, I will construct what I believe is the background for why the times we now live in are at its lowest and saddest point. Slavery started in this country in the early 17th century. 
And I contend that we have never healed from how it dehumanized the enslaved, leaving a stench in the air, a stain on its soul. Other countries engaged in indentured servitude and treated servants fairly and honored the promise of payment of some kind at the end of the period of servitude. To my knowledge, no one ever got their 40 acres and a mule in this country. President Lincoln saw the carnage of the Civil War, a war that addressed the inhumanity of free and torturous slave labor to produce an economy for white farm owners who needed their cotton and tobacco tended to, grown on stolen land, by any means necessary. If the Lincoln, if the movie Lincoln, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, is told truthfully, that president had a conscience found the courage to do the right thing against all personal odds. The war ended with the Emancipation Proclamation, what we now call an executive order, and the enslaved were declared free in 1963 if they lived in the states that had rebelled. And the subsequent 13th Amendment to the Constitution freed all enslaved people. So it seemed that descendants from Africans stolen from their homeland would be free to live as they pleased. Except that a band of white men, much like the ones formed to capture runaway slaves, continued with the idea to capture and imprison freed men as they looked for jobs. The captured were made to work the stolen land as a form of punishment. However, productivity to restore the nation after the war had begun created a reconstruction period that allowed the freed men and women to thrive. There were several states in the South that even had black representation in the legislature. But in 1876, those who never accepted the idea that former slaves should be free to live as they please revolted by voting in President Rutherford B. Hayes, who ended Reconstruction in 1877. Any progress gained had been lost. People of color were, we were actually called colored, were made to live separately in a country called the United States of America. There was separate and unequal everything. Signage said so, especially in the South. The Jim Crow era is a name given to this period. White people simply could not envision that colored people who previously worked the stolen land for free were entitled to live good or near them, especially if they did good or better than they did. The Ku Klux Klan punished them for doing so. The lynchings happened at will if a white person was angered for any reason by something a colored person did or didn't do, or some other white person said they did or didn't do. They had their children watch these punishments too, so they would know what to do when they became adults. There were a few notable wealthy white people who saw and felt it necessary to preserve colored people's cultural richness. They sponsored or promoted them through the arts. Thus came the Harlem Renaissance era. But even during this period of artistic acknowledgement, division was infused in the colored community. Zora Neale Hurston wrote stories to preserve the authenticity and language of colored people as they tried to survive in a country that left them high and dry. 
Lots of debates ensued between she and Langston Hughes, whose poetry was written with the intent to uplift. Around the turn of the 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois sparred with Booker T. Washington about the manner in which to educate former enslaved people, get a college degree, or teach them a trade. Yet colored people tenaciously and separately lived as best they could, regardless of their degree or trade. The menial jobs were plentiful, but they did not pay well. People from the South left farms to migrate up north when factories used their labor for minimum, minimum wages. Eventually, they got really sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when Rosa Parks said she would not give up her seat on a bus after a long day of working, another era was born, the Civil Rights Era. Prominent Southern officials like Bull Connor and George Wallace felt emboldened and announced their hatred of the idea that Negroes, as we were called then, could live like white people. Martin Luther King Jr. led peaceful marches while dodging attack dogs sent to keep the marchers from bridging the racial divide. Spirited and faith-filled, he held meetings with dignitaries, even got President Lyndon Johnson to sign a couple of bills, one to give Negroes the right to vote, though the 14th and 15th Amendments had already stated so, and the other that gave them the ability to live and work wherever they could. Progress, right? Or did the racist thinkers simply go underground, waiting for the signal to stand down and stand by as they killed Dr. King? Once Negroes recovered from the death of Dr. King, it was cool to be black in America. Say it loud, we were black and proud. We wore our hair naturally because we no longer needed to straighten our hair to look white to ease the discomfort white people felt if we honored our heritage or reminded them of how we looked when they stole us. Fortune 500 companies hired us. We bought homes in the suburbs and our children went to college, even at predominantly white colleges and universities. We thrived and made progress athletically and capitalistically. In the early 90s, technology began to expand in ways we couldn't even see. The internet allowed people to communicate in nanoseconds. Information, good and fake, could be shared around the world with just a click of the computer keyboard. Social media became a winning platform used by a skinny man with a funny name to not only become senator for Illinois, but president of the United States. Oh my God. We who were now called African Americans were overjoyed with pride. We certainly had overcome, right? We now lived in a post-racial era, yes? But it seemed the undercurrent of the newest generation of former cotton and tobacco farmers was incensed at having a black man, a true African American, run the country they claimed to have built. The nerve of it all! According to Mitch McConnell, the Speaker of the House, he would do all he could to make this black man a one-term president. And thus, I believe, was born the makings of the Trump era. 
Ta-Nehisi Coates, a native Baltimorean who writes for the Atlantic magazine and who has written several great nonfiction books, said in an interview about his book, Eight Years When We Were in Power, that if we hadn't had an Obama, we wouldn't have gotten a Trump. The rhetoric that was started by this golden-haired white man began with questioning Obama's birthright to run. People listened intently. They believed whatever they read on social media and heard on conservative news networks. Fake news had begun. A thirsty tea party stirred the cauldron of divisive Kool-Aid, spilled the fertilizing liquid all over the land until the ground began to rumble and shift as if the roots of a racist tree were angrily about to break ground. It seemed to me that the egregious treatment of black men escalated during Obama's presidency, especially with the success of his being re-elected, the audacity of a second term. Some incidents got national attention. Baltimore erupted in 2014 when Freddie Gray entered a paddy wagon alive and, and exited on a stretcher bound for the morgue. Errol Ghana was choked to death because five or six cops wanted to stop him from selling loose cigarettes on New York streets. A 14-year-old boy in Chicago was playing with a toy gun in a park and was shot to death because of a call to the police. Another young boy was walking home after buying Skittles one night in Florida and was shot for trespassing by a neighborhood watchman and he wasn't even a policeman. I don't have the space, time, or voice to cite the rest of the people who were killed, at least the ones I know about. And just like the lynchings, impunity reigned. I looked up the definition and Webster says, impunity is the exemption from punishment or freedom from the injurious consequences of an action. To paraphrase another quote from Tanahasi, to be white in America is to self-deputize. I say, shades of the KKK or what? I may not be 100% accurate when I say not one white person involved in the shootings I mentioned or the ones I haven't has been punished for their action, nor has the current president about to leave his White House in less than two weeks, offered any concern, corrections, or condolences. How he got to this highest position in the home of the free and land of the brave is mesmerizing. I traveled to Australia in 2016, a few weeks before the presidential election. When Australians I met realized I was from the United States, they would say immediately in a horrified tone, how can you let a reality show host become president? I couldn't answer then, but now I can. Because we had an Obama, perhaps that's why. Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016 with electoral votes. And for his second run for president, 74 million people voted for him despite his reality show background. 
despite his blatant sexism, racism, and lack of empathy for people who have died because he failed to address the severity of a virus that has led to a pandemic the world has never seen. Despite his jealousy of following the stellar job done by a black man as president, despite his disrespect for people with disabilities or those who were imprisoned while defending the country he is leading, despite his lack of complicity with producing personal tax information, despite his spread of false information like a dollop of Miracle Whip heaped onto a big turkey sandwich, no matter what he says, does, or doesn't do, said, did, or continues to do, there has been no punishment. Democracy in America had created its own weapon, but of mass indestruction. And because of this inability to accept that 74 million votes were not enough to get him a second term, he has been allowed to act with such impunity that he felt kingly enough to incite an insurrection, resulting in an attack on a federal building just 12 miles from my home, the U.S. Capitol building, filled with senators and representatives about to put the final stamp on the pronouncement that Joe Biden is president-elect and a non-white, non-male, a black Asian woman as vice president-elect will lead, lead the United States of America come January 20th. What has baffled me is how so many Republicans in the House of Representatives and Senators could be quiet about the four years of shenanigans, questionable international attachments as well as detachments, misdemeanors, and borderline high crimes committed by such a man to known to throw temper tantrums, much like a toddler experiencing the terrible twos. Is it because their pockets were spilling over from the highs of the stock market, recovered because of Obama's eight years? I will give ex-Governor Romney lots of credit for having a faith-filled conscience and not a political one. He stood alone long ago, citing the harm and dangers such a man could do to this nation. How the others sleep at night must be due to the noisy CPAP machines that drown out their greedy thoughts. I should have been celebrating jubilantly a certain kind of history made on that day, January 6, 2021. The stalwart southern state of Georgia, where three-fourths of its residents are people of color, had just elected for the first time a senator of color, Reverend Raphael Warnock. I was impressed with him as he presided over John Lewis's funeral as the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the same church Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was pastor. He was effective at his televised debate, too. I suppose his win was fitting as well as timely. Additionally, the state delivered what the Democratic Party needed to balance the Senate by sending two Democratic senators to Washington with electing John Ossoff. I'd like to think my small donations to the two campaigns paid off this time. But instead of celebrating on the Feast of the Epiphany, the day the three wise men were biblically reported to have visited the baby Jesus, 
I listened to the rhetoric delivered by a president who rallied for support of his false allegations about a fraudulent election process. Watching him speak is something I have had no interest in doing before, not even the State of the Union addresses. But that day I felt some curiosity, just enough, to tune into C-SPAN radio as I ran a few errands in my COVID prevention gear and hand sanitizer and watched C-SPAN TV later because no regular network carried the Poor Losers event. The words I heard were unconscionable, incendiary. They were not spoken by a man of power, but by a mad and angry man who sensed his limited power having only 15 days left as president of the so-called model nation. The audience was filled with what I would call members of a self-deputized lynch mob, with children in tow to learn how it's done. They were ready and waiting for the signal to burn the cross on the lawn, to cut the rope holding the noose. And there was a noose. They were ready and waiting for the signal to, to burn, as I mentioned. And they were crazed people, needing just a flicker of a match to set them alight and attack to bypass the questionably unprepared and unskilled Capitol Police on duty without backup from the armed National Guard, so as to enter and destroy the building. They got their long-awaited signal that day when Trump said, Let's go to the Capitol. Once I heard the YMCA theme song that followed that direction, I went to another room in my home to Zoom practice with my guitar group. An hour later, I returned to the TV and found the country witnessing a takeover, live and in living non-color. The fear I had reminded me of the sinking feeling when the country was bombed on 9-11. But this time, the U.S. was self-imploding. Was this really happening in this country? Had our addiction to white supremacy, greed, and fake news got us here? Was the rest of the world watching? Have we reached rock bottom or what? What a job left for the incoming administration. It's a monumental task now. After almost 200 years of missteps and inconsequential bad behavior, perhaps the chickens have finally come home to roost, Malcolm X. When Trump lost the 2020 election, I jokingly said to several friends how I hoped that in the remaining days of his one-term presidency, he would not act like some people whose homes are foreclosed on. Angry at the bank's decision, the former home dwellers would tear up the house before they leave. Well, not only did this man act the fool, this last stunt had completed the trifecta, as far as I'm concerned, keeping the virus secret, allegations of a rigged election, and now inciting an insurrection on his own country. By the end of this second day of infamy, the political carnage was unbelievable. Though the congressional members were spared any physical injury, over 139 House of Representatives voted to support the idea of the fraudulent election.
Physically, several Capitol Police were injured. One even died the next day after being hit in the head with a fire extinguisher during the attack. And four rioters succumbed to shots. Why were the domestic terrorists so easily able to storm the Capitol? Had the rally been organized by black people about a camera-proving miscarriage of justice of someone in their community? I, I, I don't even need to finish this sentence. Primarily, enough news reporters have, because enough news reporters have thankfully cleaned their blind-to-the-truth lenses and can now see what blacks have always seen through their eyes in situations such as these. Trump's main medium for communicating his thoughts, ideas, threats, assessment of people, firings, and other decisions have been posted on Twitter, a social media. After temporarily suspending his account for 24 days, the social media officials canceled it because he continued to tweet inflammatory remarks even after the insurrection. I sure hope that that punishment won't be the only sentence he amasses in his last days as president, for being a seditionist should have other more serious consequences. If we had an Obama, can you imagine the swiftness at which he would have been ousted? I listened to Stephen Schmidt a few months ago on Amanpour, a, CBS pro- a PBS program, shortly after the election results were announced. A co-founder of the Lincoln Project, an organization started by Republicans who saw this monster work as magic, Mr. Schmidt described the growing fears the group had that this Trump era would not go away and would not only split the party in two parts, but predicted the secession of some states. Over $250 million have been raised for Trump's foundation to support future political agendas as he has already started. That he has already started. What I heard was that more Trump-like people were going to be funded groomed to keep the chaos going. Schmidt mentioned the possibility of a second civil war. Perhaps like the coronavirus pandemic, this country is sadly out of control. We should no longer deny the truth about how we got here, to this place, a place where the soul of the nation is at stake, big time. It may be impossible to drive underground once more that ugly, ignorant, entitled, hate-filled resentment fueling the notion that this is a white country and only white people can make the rules and rule it, no matter the qualifications. For 74 million people to support this narcissist shows how divided this country is. It truly feels like another civil war is about to go down if this president is not held accountable. And we will be like all the other nations who have lost their soul and who are still left searching for it amidst the carnage of those who chose to stand up for the more perfect union ideals. Can American history ever be great? At the Library of Congress, a building directly across from the Capitol in the main reading room, the dome section of the library where I once worked, 
includes a supersized statue that represents the subject of history. The statue holds a lamp in one hand as its head is turned to look back, seemingly shedding light on the past. How will historians treat the week from January 4th to 9th? What would my college history professor have to say about the 45th president's legacy if he were alive and still enlightening students about our country's past? This is a new year, only nine days old, but it already feels as bad as the last one. Let's pray for better things to come in 2021. Till next time. Hello, listeners. I'd like to offer you uh, my apology for misstating a couple of things in my episode 18. There were three glaring ones. Um, The first was the fact that I mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation ending the Civil War, when indeed it did not. The second misquote was the year in which the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. It was 1863. Finally, I mentioned that Trump's Twitter suspension was 24 days when I really meant to say 24 hours was the temporary suspension time frame. So please forgive my lips. Um, My eyes were probably tired after this long extended version and um, I certainly hope that uh, what I have provided otherwise is informative and I appreciate your loyal listening. Thank you.